Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. My name is Tracy Nguyen Meng, and I'm the founder and creator of the Vietnamese Boat People podcast, a nonprofit. We are an organization based here on the East Coast, and our mission is to preserve the stories of the Vietnamese diaspora. And we share the stories and we preserve them mainly through our podcast, which is available um, for free. And also we have listeners all over the world, but we do other things like storytelling events, uh, conversation kits, um, community events, and really our goal is to encourage generations to participate in preserving these stories. Welcome to The Vietnamese. I'm your host, Kenneth Nguyen. Being part of a culture of nearly 100 million Vietnamese people in the world today comes with a lot of pain, proud history, and privilege. Join me as I highlight and explore the Vietnamese experience from all over the world. How has becoming or evolving into your identity as a Vietnamese person changed over the years? It's changed a lot. And I think, um, you know, as cliche as it sounds, I think the the biggest change happened when I became a parent. Mm. Um, you know, when you're younger, and especially like you and I growing up in such a hybrid cultural world, right, where we're Vietnamese American and um, sometimes you don't feel really Vietnamese or American and you're kind of stuck in this like hybrid world. And so you're navigating that throughout your life. But then when I became a parent, it became very clear to me that I wanted to raise my children with the same culture and values that I had growing up. And I think when I was younger, I was kind of navigating that in a way where like, sometimes I would want to shut the Vietnamese side of me behind, right? Um, the trauma, the history, sometimes it was just too much. But then other times, you know, you wanted to embrace it. And I think when you become a parent, you want to embrace it all, because you start to kind of like question your past and how it makes you as a parent, you start to have more appreciation of your own parents, and what they had to go through to raise you and and you know, the entire family. And so for me, it has evolved in so many different ways and directions. But I think the the one that has really 
defined my purpose the most is becoming a parent and realizing that um, I really valued everything that my parents taught me and our culture and our heritage. And I want to pass those things along to my own children. Now, your partner and my partner, they're not Vietnamese, right? Why no? No. So my (laughs) husband is, yeah. So that's where the, my last name Meng came from. So my husband is half Chinese and half Irish. Um, And, you know, that makes it harder to raise the children in a hundred percent Vietnamese household. Um, And, you know, I struggle with that too early on in parenting right? Where I, um, with the first child, I tried to speak Vietnamese to her all the time because I was like, I want her to like speak Vietnamese like I do and the way I was raised. And it becomes hard, right? Because I'm the only one in the family that speaks it. Um, And then with the second child, you get lazy. (laughs) You don't don't have the same discipline. So so unfortunately, my kids are not uh, bilingual. My daughter is a little bit better than my son in terms of understanding, but it's a struggle every day. Yeah, I think it's hard. I think it's impossible. I don't know if it's impossible, but it definitely takes a lot of like um, intentional focus as a parent. Like, I don't know if you did this, but, you know, when I was growing up, my parents sent us to Vietnamese summer school and like. I hated it. I'm sure you hated it because it's summer. And the last thing you want to do is spend eight hours in the classroom learning Vietnamese. Um, But now it's like, I wish something like that existed for my children. I don't know if I'd send them the whole summer, but I definitely would send them to some sort of immersion. Yeah. And I think that's why the work that we do is so important, especially to us. But I don't know how important it is to them. I always fantasize that my son or daughter in their late ages are going to pull them up to listen to them. I don't think that, you know, in their twenties, thirties, forties, it's going to mean much, but I think it's going to be relevant to them at some point, but it, it's not, it's just not uh, in the cards for them. And I don't know how, you know, how, how to impact that. And even if we can impact it, if it's even important for, for, that generation. I think the work that I do is more for myself. I mean, to be to be perfectly honest with you. Yeah, you know, it's hard to say because um, generationally, I think, you know, like our generation, I feel like we're very heavily influenced by the history of Vietnam and our parents' diaspora experiences, right? And to your point, like, do the younger generations feel that as much? I don't know. I think it depends on the individual. Um, I think though, and this is a general statement, but I think at some point in everyone's life, they become curious, um, and they want, you know, it's part of like developing your own self-identity. You become a little bit more curious on your background. Um, you become a little bit more appreciative of family history or friends or, you know, whomever your loved or close ones are. And I do think at some point you do, um, you know, get intrigued and want to learn more. Now, whether or not that's going to like last or whether or not that's going to push them forward in the spaces that you and I are in, probably not. <laughs> but I think the the work that we do will, will be um, valuable and of interest at some point in their lives. Yeah. And the beauty has been for 
for me, um, and I'm sure that, you know, man, hopefully you can talk about this. The, the people that reach out are sometimes some of the most least expected that reach out and, and comments that are so touching and, and moving. Yeah, we have like, um, you know, when I started the podcast, it was, it was just, first of all, it wasn't like this big thought out plan. It kind of just happened. (laughs) It's very organic. Like I was going through my own journey where I had children and, you know, my dad turned 80 and I just was like, oh gosh, mom and dad, like, I don't know how much longer they're going to be around. And, you know, at the time when I started the podcast, my son was two. Um, and my daughter was like, you know, they're only 20 months apart. So she was also around her toddler years and, you know, obviously too young to even begin talking about any of this. Right. Right. And so I just had this like moment of like, oh my gosh, like if mom and dad are gone, I don't even know like how to tell this story properly. Like, you know, and I don't know enough about our family's history. And so I felt this sense of urgency to begin recording their stories. And so literally bought the Blue Yeti, which is like the infamous, you know, starter microphone for so many people and my laptop. And I took the Amtrak down to Northern Virginia where my parents were. And I just asked them, you know, if I could like interview them. And I told them it's to preserve it for, you know, my children, our nieces and nephews. Um, And they were so like willing. And I did the same with my brothers. And so I had just this collection of recordings that I had no idea what to do with. Um, Yeah, I would love to write a book, but I'm not a writer. And I wasn't like, I didn't imagine myself going on like an eight year journey of trying to write a memoir or a book. Um, And I know a lot of people do it and it's so hard. And it just wasn't like something that I saw myself doing because I just wasn't a natural writer. And I, and I, um, I don't know. I just felt like I had these recordings and I had to do something with it. I had to tell the world. (laughs) Um, And through just a whim, I love podcasting. This is back in 2018. And I said, you know what? I'm going to like learn how to edit this and do a mini series of my family story. And um, that was kind of how the podcast began. So chapter one is my family story. And I took classes at like a local film center to learn how to like craft a story and edit my own sound um, and and podcast. And from that, I actually started organically getting feedback. Um, I'd started an Instagram account and I was getting feedback that says, wow, finally, there's a there's a story about Vietnamese boat people. Like, it's so amazing. And oh, my gosh, listening to your dad talk about the escape. That's like my dad. And so people started sharing and, um, and I realized I wasn't alone in this journey. Like there were so many other people like me, just what I call like the 360, trying to reconnect to their heritage and their past, trying to make sense of all of it, trying to preserve it because, you know, our parents' generation is an aging one. Um, and so that's when I decided to convert it to a pot, uh, to a nonprofit, And I said, you know what, I'm going to help bring more of these stories forward. Just everyday people who um, have these amazing stories that aren't shared more widely. Um, And I'm going to hopefully encourage people to share at home, hopefully educate and bring more awareness to what our stories are all about in our own words. 
Um, and so the first few like solicitation of, <laughs> of asking people to share their stories was not an easy one. Like some people are like, who are you? And what's a podcast? And, you know, this wasn't so long ago, but podcast, I don't think was as mainstream, um, at least to like people who weren't like really into that media space. Right. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I just curated some stories and then some people went to me the first few episodes we have after my family stories was actually when I posted it, I got, um, I got uh, Leo Larson, who was one of the seamen that rescued two boats of Vietnamese refugees. He contacted me, showed me his newspaper clipping um, when it happened in the 80s and said, hey, you know, this moment, like always stuck with me for the, you know, my entire life. Wow. Um, and so I started talking to him and then I was like, Leo, I'd love to share your story in the podcast. And then we shared some other stories of like, humanitarians that volunteered at the refugee camps um, who are also in their 80s now. Wow. Um, so I captured their stories. But once I had those first few, it became easier. Like people started to trust what I was trying to do. And then after that, um, other people came to me and said, hey, I love what you're doing. Can I volunteer to help you? And that's how we became a Vietnamese boat people team of um, just people who are passionate about these stories, um, creators, and, you know, want to be in this space to shape our narratives. Um, but it's been like, it's been a very organic journey. And um, yeah, not thought out at all. I mean, it was just kind of like developed as it goes. And as we got feedback, you know, one thing that you that I'm picking up on is this idea of organic growth. And I think that if the growth is not organic and it's coming from a place of because there's a lot of people who start these sort of podcasts and and the longevity of it is is tricky because the organic side of it if it's not coming from a place of curiosity or something that's really relevant to your experiences uh growing up it's it's hard to sustain and find mm -hmm. that pocket of that rhythmic pocket that you just continue to 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 go because uh it's it's not an easy it's not an easy thing to do it's not easy and uh, there's like little money in it <laughs> for like some of the big podcasts right so like if you if people start podcasting to to make money it's probably the wrong idea <laughs> yeah it's not um at all the right idea it's uh no. very very wrong to it's like becoming a singer i think um you can't become a singer if you're looking for the money yeah you really enjoy you know performing and singing and the musicality you, re you really yes. have to really get into it yeah and it's um you know like for me it was it's just a i'm motivated yeah. uh personally by it and um you know it's when I started it out, I just, I wasn't thinking like we would have millions of listeners. I wasn't thinking we'd be like all over the New York times. It would be great. And we have had some pretty big media um, coverage, but again, organic. And I just thought, you know what, there's a very small niche group that's interested in these stories. Yeah. And I'm absolutely fine with that. Yeah. And so our affinities and our supporters, um, uh, I'm sorry, our, our listeners and our supporters have a strong affinity to what we do. And I think that's the most important thing. Um, but, uh, you know, 
I'm constantly thinking about what next, because I think, you know, when we started this out, there were um, not as many Asian American stories out there um, in like mainstream media that is like broadcasting for free that is accessible for all. And now there's um, a lot more, which is amazing. And there wasn't a lot of Vietnamese specific ones either. And so I feel like we're at a such a pivotal moment, right, for Vietnamese Americans. I mean, look at the movie that you guys just launched. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. And like all these Vietnamese American authors and creators and filmmakers and artists. And so, um, you know, I'd love to kind of think about how do we um, be a part of helping to elevate that beyond just our podcast. Um, but I also really... The, the other part of like why I'm so passionate about this is because I didn't grow up feeling like this huge sense of pride of being Vietnamese. Right. That's the truth. Yeah. Right. Um, I, you know, I grew up wanting to be American. I grew up wanting to be financially secure because it was like living paycheck by paycheck every day growing up. Cause my parents were trying to make ends meet and we have seven kids and the youngest is seven. So my gosh, like, I don't know how they do it. I have two kids and I'm like barely surviving <laughs> emotionally, <laughs> but um, you know, so there was just so many factors and complexities and, um, and, you know, the, like our generation, we just didn't have this confidence to voice who we are. And we're still, you know, everything just felt so like, um, entwine and like we couldn't make sense of um, what our identity was supposed to be in America, right? Or for our generation, et cetera. So all of those things I didn't really like, I didn't take pride in. And then also, you know, when we were growing up, it's like when they teach about the Vietnam War in public schools, like I was almost embarrassed by it. Because yeah. no, it's it like, would... that's, that's what people associated yeah. you with, right? The Vietnam War, oh, you were a refugee. And it, it felt like a stigma. It, it was um, a stigma. It was yeah. a stigma. You know, um, for men of my generation, we were zipper heads. We were VCs. We were, we were the enemy. But it's like, wait, you guys have no idea. Like we, our parents served on the same side, and then the women are de depicted as you know prostitutes, working women, yes. you know, at the bars, and so that carries on in our generation. And it's like a this unspoken. It's traumatic. It, uh, it is. And and so it and then you know, you don't see yourself represented anywhere, like through your own voices, right? It's all through what the media has shaped you, what the politics and the war has, has shaped your identity to be. And so um, you know, part of what's so important to me in the nonprofit um organization that I've created is that I just want to instill pride. I want to encourage people to share. Um, hopefully by listening to our stories or attending our events or participating, they, they feel a sense of connection, even if they're not the ones sharing, they can at least um, relate to it and not feel so alone. Um, and also, I think for ones that maybe already have a sense of identity or confidence, but maybe they're not feeling um, like they connect with their family members or their parents, like I, I, we get a lot of listeners that said, you know, they never really quite felt like they understood their parents and why they are a certain way or why they act a certain way. And hopefully by sharing stories, it, you know, gives them a different perspective on what their parents' upbringing have been like or experiences. And so, you know, the, the mission of our nonprofit is just to really encourage 
that, to encourage like exploration, to encourage like your own personal journey at the pace that you want to go, but to also like encourage story sharing. Um, And we always tell people like, you don't have to be a content creator to participate or join our events. I mean, geez, like I wasn't in this media space when I started, right? But like everybody has a story to share. Um, And, you know, hopefully we're building a community that gives each other agency to do that. Yeah. And we, we are, you know, going back to what you said about uh, releasing Micah, you're like, oh, look at that today, right? Look at what, what we've done. But I'm going to tell you something. This is my sixth movie. One, two, three, four, five, six. This is my sixth film in the last, I don't know, maybe 12 years. And the first five films, I can tell you, were great movies. They were great films. And nobody came out to support the way this has turned out timing is everything yeah timing is everything because you know why the community was not ready and i'm not just even saying like the vietnamese community like the american community wasn't ready to embrace movies like this you know and so i think timing is everything but it's um first of all better, better late than never Right. Because it's only going to I imagine it's only going to go up from here for the younger generations. Right. Um, Hopefully. But, you know, it's great that um, we can experience it now because we didn't have any of this. And just like so in New Jersey recently, and I know this is happening in other states, um, they're passing in the board education to have AAPI history a part of, you know, the education curriculum. And it was never like, imagine that mm-hmm. Asian American history was never taught in like regular public school system, maybe in like private school, you know, more so in collegiate than it is in like high school yeah. and under, but like we're, yeah, mm-hmm. so crazy. When you, th- when you think about like Chinese and Japanese Americans, like the history of their lives here in America and still they're not taught in history books yeah. the way that you know their stories deserve it's like crazy but you know it's happening now and um it's exciting that my children by the time they reach high school hopefully it will be a full curriculum that they'll be exposed to what are some of the podcasts that inspired you um and you listened to uh before you started yours yeah so i very <laughs> So there you were non-Vietnamese or Asian specific, but um, there are three that really like inspired me and helped me think about how I wanted to shape Vietnamese boat people. I'm so excited to hear this. (laughs) (laughs) You got when it this podcast stuff. So believe it or not, the first one was how I built this. Okay. Guy Raz. Um, Yes. And the reason was because I, first of all, I love the intimacy of the conversations Mm -hmm. that he has with the entrepreneurs. And so I wanted to create that where it felt like, um, you know, these stories are personal, intimate stories of the Vietnamese diaspora. And a lot of the interviewees um, have never shared this, not even with their own family members. Like I've had, I've had people um, like sons and daughters listen to my show and say, you know what, my dad, like actually never, like 
um, one of our episodes of Perfect Storm, Michelle, who's the daughter, reached out to me and said, oh, could you preserve my dad's story? Because we heard bits and pieces of it, but I, I can't really make sense of it. And once we released his episode, she sent me this heartfelt email that said, wow, that's incredible. Like, I had no idea that was my dad's story. Wow. Um, she was like, he told me bits of it, but like nothing in the level of detail that he shared with you. And so like, for me, it felt like I, I wanted to create a, a conversation that they, they felt comfortable in and yeah. trusted me, who is actually a complete stranger, <laughs> but trusted me enough to share their most intimate moments and traumatic experiences. Um, and so Guy Raz, I felt like how I built this, you know, the entrepreneurs shared both the good and the bad. And there was just so much grit behind they behind how they were just like striving to grow this big idea they had into an actual organization company and you know worth millions or billions. Yeah. And so that really inspired me the format and the intimacy and the grittiness behind it. Um, this American life, which I loved because, and, you know, they have featured a couple of Vietnamese boat people stories before, but you know, they're one-offs like every now and then they might do an episode. Right. Um, so this American life and story corp were two kind of similar ones that I love because they're just about like normal everyday people sharing their stories. Um, and so I liked how it wasn't about well-known people. And so I always say 80% of the people we interview are just everyday people. Yeah. Um, and so 20% are like Vietnamese American authors or filmmakers. We had that wing on our show. Um, so, you know, that other 20%, it's because they're interesting people. And we hope, you know, they can share that being in the creative space is not something that you should shy away from because, you know, growing up, our parents taught us to be practical and not be artistic. And so, you know, we like to share that side of the story too. Um, but the last one I would say is cereal. Mm. And it is so like left, you know, left um, side and just so different from what we do. But what I loved about cereal is, um, you know, the fact that there is some narration and there is like a journalistic kind of um fact base behind it. And so with our podcast, um, it's mostly told in first person, but it is curated and edited. And I do narrate over some of the story. And really the intention is because if you're a first time listener, or you're just new to this part of history, there are, you know, facts about some of these historical events that adds context to what the story is about. Um, and so serial kind of does that in its, in its way. And so I thought, you know what, you know, throughout the story, if someone is talking about Operation Baby Lift, you know, it'd be good to provide some context on what that program was about and how many children were impacted and, and et cetera. Um, so those were the ones that I think, um, well, I was definitely listening to at the time, but was really kind of like influencing me and had me noodling about how I wanted our show to be. Yeah. Those are three ironclad, you know, foundational, you know, if I was, you know, a a person that knew nothing about nothing, those three would be um, among the top um, podcasts that are, that are, that exists. You know, the thing about Guy Raz is interesting is when you listen to his stuff today, 
there's still a lot of ums and ahs. I know. You know, there's a. But I miss the early years because now he's got tons of ads in between. Like the other day, I was doing a drive and I was listening to a show, and I think it ended up being like an hour and forty five minutes because there was just all these inserts of ads. How many um, ads did he have? Yeah, he has ads at the beginning, and then he like has two breaks in the middle, and then he has some at the end. And um, I don't know. For me, I know you need the ads because you got to make the money. <laughs> you can afford the ads though, too, right? Yeah, it's a little bit harder when you're driving um, to kind of space it because then you end up fast forwarding too much and etc. <laughs> but I do miss the early years because. I think with everything, with every show and every podcast, right? It's like the early years when it feels like a little bit like startup-y, yeah. right? There's just something raw about it. Yeah. And yeah. when he started, it was the same thing. He was like, I started this just because I love the idea and I'm passionate about it. And I'm always curious about these entrepreneurs. And he's like, I had no idea it was going to be like this major you know, show that people would tune into and love so much. Um, but he also like you know, just started something on a whim. Um, and I know he has a whole yeah. journalistic was, career behind it. I was him. just going to say. But the idea of the show was was really just like, I think this would be fun. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that, I know. Was, I miss the early years, though. Yeah. <laughs> he's a veteran in, in this space. He's yeah. uh, got big teams and he's got a yeah. lot of experience. He makes it look easy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, his... his, his, his today, I mean... The most recent one I, I listened to was this one on the Leatherman. You know, there's a tool. There's a, yes. a Leatherman tool. Like it's like a Swiss army of, of tools. And it's it's about this white guy who uh, went to, you know, went to college and, and you know, was kind of like discovering himself. And then he went uh, into the common area at, at school and he met this beautiful woman and it unfolds, right? And you realize the Viet it's a Vietnamese woman. And the Vietnamese woman takes him back to Vietnam. And that's oh, where the I birth of the Leatherman. It's no, so I fascinating. See, I, I use that Leatherman that. tool. Um, you know, I have it. And just to know the origin on how that tool was built and how the Vietnamese sort of like the landscape, because when he went back, it was like during the war. Or before the war and you would watch these little boys fix bicycles and motorbikes and he was like getting involved with it and he didn't know anything about engineering or anything and you hear guy rosers bring it out and the artful way that the story unfolds is yes. so beautiful and you're like wow this the origination of the of the idea Yes, Vietnam, and it's just such a beautiful episode. Yeah, it is, and I mean, just his style was, uh, you know, something that really influenced me because, you know, he's interviewing these people, but it's not like a Q and A. Like it's really storytelling. He takes the listener, like it's a simple interview, but he does it in a way where he takes the listener from the beginning to a peak of that entrepreneur's story, right, and then kind of like then takes it to an ending. Um, but it, it's just, it's well crafted. And you're right, there's tons of ums and he stutters through his questions yeah. sometimes. But um, I think that's sort of like the natural organic feel that um, is probably intentional for, for him. For sure. Yeah. I find it so inspiring though, to have that intentional ums and ahs not taken mm -hmm. out. It's really inspirational. Now, 
how do you select your stories? What what makes it to the you know what makes it to the the screen? What makes um yeah? Podcast? So our nonprofit in general, we do um, we record a lot of stories more so pre pandemic than now because we were physically in communities doing pop up recording events just encourage people to share. Um, but in terms of curating what actually gets into the podcast, it's never that someone's story isn't good enough because I, I don't want that to ever, you know, be the reason. It's really because um, we're seasonally based, which means that every season I try to pick a selective stories that fall uh, revolve around a theme. Mm. So this uh, year's theme for season five is lost and found. Um, and it's just about people or things or places or identities that we've lost and the journey in trying to reclaim that or mend or heal. Um, and so that's broad enough where we could go to the recordings that we have and, and pick some out. Um, also, I think we try to pick ones that we feel haven't been covered because, you know, when you say uh, boat people, refugees, I mean, everyone's going to be like, oh, they escaped by boat. They were at sea. They landed a refugee camp. Yeah, there's a lot of those commonalities, but um, there's actually some very unique experiences along the way that an individual has or their own family background is unique um, or how they've interpreted that experience, like what they you know chose to do or not do with those experiences. Um, so we try to find um, elements of their stories that we feel we haven't covered in previous episodes. And so um, those are the ones that we pick and we curate. And, you know, I make it sound like it's so organized and, and stuff, but it's really not. At the end of the day, it's still very like ad hoc and organic. Um, I do have a lineup of like stories that we share, but it's still very like as we go, right? Um, and so, it, you know, it's just, it's important for us so, to kind of bring different voices to the show. Um, Multi-generational voices is important. Um, and when I spoke about the volunteers that were non-Vietnamese that we profile, like it's also important for us to not only focus on certain like, you know, profiles, but, we tried to do um, people that were involved in the history. Um, we also have stories of adoptees. So, um, you know, just Vietnamese adoptees and what it means for them now, you know, being Vietnamese when they grew up, you know, raised by American parents. When they grew up, like, knowing nothing about, right. you know, the country in which they were born. So we do try to cover a variety as well. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park 
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Can you imagine, this is what I was imagining um, in the last few weeks uh, when I think about your podcast and you know interviewing you. This, this is what I was going through in my mind was, can you imagine if this technology, if this information was around, let's say 1975, right? And you had like years of these episodes and, you know, we spoke English or French or whatever that we can understand these podcasts. Then, you know, our parents, not that they're in Vietnam, but let's just say this was a, a Thai thing or, a, or somebody in Southeast Asia, Korea or whatever, and this sort of thing existed, let's say for the Ukrainian people today, that they could hear the situations that humans have gone through of loss and found and ev evolution of their own trajectories in their life and how inspiring it is to know that on the other side of all of this death and destruction, that there's hope and there's light. And um, I think not only just in a literal sense, when people are listening like Ukrainians, but also in a metaphorical sense where we can get these stories and we can be inspired and motivated to live life and not worry too much about the outcome. Yeah. I mean, you know, it would be amazing. And there are like um, shows right now capturing, you know, the experiences of the Afghan uh, refugees or Ukrainian refugees. And so that's happening now. Um, but the people that are, you know, experiencing the migration, they're, they don't have the time to listen to it, even if the technology is available right now. Like they're not listening to, to the coverage, right? And so it's just, you know, it's not what's your main priority right now. It's just survival is your main priority. So even if it existed for our parents, I'm not so sure, mm. you know, they would have the time to, to sit there and kind of uh, reflect on it. To be honest, I think they were just in survival mode, like today's refugees. Um, uh, you know, what's interesting about our show, well, you know, I mentioned why I started the podcast, but there were so many other factors that were happening around 2018 that was just like had me itching everywhere that, you know, I needed to put these stories out there. Um, one of them was just, you know, the the presidential election at the time and the fact that like we had an, a president administration that was just closing our borders and not taking in any more uh, migrants. Um, and, you know, I felt like people needed to understand why people choose to flee their country. And, you know, if given the choice, most people wouldn't want to do it because it's starting a new life, new culture, new language, and oftentimes it's dangerous journeys, right? So like these stories that we air in our podcast was meant to create some empathy mm. around the refugee experience, right? Why these families and individuals like would choose these life-threatening journeys 
um, because sometimes it's the last resort. Sometimes it's desperation. So, you know, there's, there's multiple complexities behind why families flee. And so by listening to stories of refugees, even if it's a past historical war, it will hopefully create more empathy. Um, and so that was important to me too, because I felt like a lot of times stories of refugees get covered by journalists or academia doing you know, studies and stuff like that, but they're not covered and told directly by the people who've lived through those experiences. And so that was an important part of the podcast was to share those first accounts, those um, you know, first person stories, and in a way that would hopefully create more compassion for today's um, migrants. But the other thing was, um, you know, we started getting a lot of listeners that are non-Vietnamese. So I did a listener survey. I don't know if I told you this, but I did a listener survey last year and we still have it. It's ongoing. But I just assumed all of our listeners were Vietnamese. And um, it turns out only about 60% are. Yes. I mean, that's incredible, right? And we, you know, we naturally get a lot of like Vietnam veterans um, that tune in. We get a lot of like academia and students that are studying about Asian American history or the Vietnam War or just um, critical refugee studies that have found our podcast and um, some professors have assigned it as supplemental learning to their syllabus. But the one thing that really stood out to me in the survey was like, we had um, asked, there was one question, I don't remember the exact um, wording of it, but we had asked something to the fact of, um, you know, why do you listen to this? And it was a multiple choice and they could check as many as they want. Right. And it was like, because I am an immigrant or refugee or because my family is of an immigrant or refugee and over 80% of our listener was because they come from immigrant backgrounds. And so even though they weren't Vietnamese, they could relate to these stories because they're, you know, families or at some point refugees or immigrants. And I think that's an important factor is because our stories are much broader than just the Vietnamese diaspora. It's the, you know, the migrant experience. It's a story about human spirit, right? Like people having grit and resilience and the willpower to fight through challenges and, you know, for a better life. And at the end of the day, I always say these are just stories about the human spirit. Like it's beyond just, you know, Vietnamese. It's universal. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. there the, And the idea of, the universal side of things, if we can't get to that, then, you know, how, how valued, I don't know. It's not kind of, it's not valuable because if, if we can't connect to it on a universal level with universal themes, um, then it's, it's sort of just kind of for a very small percentage of people. But, and that, that leads me to the next thing, which is this idea of, um, I, I don't know, it's trauma fatigue for me. Uh, I, on one point, on one side, I, I need to keep talking about like the pain and the suffering that we went through. But on the other side of it, I'm like, I'm, I'm going through the fatigue. I, I want to see what the next evolution of our Vietnamese culture, Asian American history, what, what's the next step for all of us. And, and, you know, I wanted to ask you that today. Oh, yes, I know. So it's, yeah, I, I'm working on some ideas. <laughs> For me personally, um, that I, I'm quite not ready to share, but I think I think there is a fatigue. I don't think the journey of healing is done, 
Um, and again, I think it's a, an individual journey. So, you know, I think for us, we probably feel the fatigue a little bit more because we're in this space. And so we're exposed to it a lot more um, than maybe a typical person who's not like thinking about this all the time. Um, so I still think the journey um, is ongoing. In terms of what's next, though, I feel like there is still um, unanswered questions, not necessarily the trauma, but how does the trauma evolve or how do we get past it? Right. And I think um, that is a major question that I would love to begin exploring, not only in younger generations, but in our parents' generation, right? Like, um, I think there's a lot of people who have gone past the trauma, who have actually put it aside and moved on and taken it for what it's worth. And there are others that are still healing from it, right? Um, still have not opened those wounds since they left Vietnam. Um, and so I think it just varies. Um, but what I'd love to see is a mixture of, you know, dialogue that starts to talk about um, how do we move past the trauma? Um, you know, what closures do we still need? You know, at, at what point do we continue to carry the South Vietnam flag? Or put it aside and recognize today's flag. I don't know. Wow. I think those are questions we need to ask. Yes, and explore, I'm so right? glad that you brought that up. The flag in particular, you know, um, Vietnam just won the Asian soccer sea games in, like a few weeks ago. And that flag was waved in millions of scooters and motorbikes uh as they were parading through the city and it was like shoulder to shoulder and i felt like that high school kid that was sitting by himself in the cafeteria while all the cool kids were like hanging out and having lunch together and i couldn't uh i was i mean personally what was going on in my mind was like oh this sucks because i i, I can't really i mean i can but i can't you know as as somebody who's working in this space, we can't really show that. And I'm like, God damn it. I'm I'm kids of 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 veterans and, and the South Vietnamese government, South Vietnamese army, family members that died, you know, grandparents that mm -hmm. suffered. My grandfather died at the hands of of you know this evolution of this current regime. And well, at this point, I mean hasn't it gone long enough? Uh, yeah. I, no, I don't know. And honestly, I feel like maybe the evolution is for us to ask those questions. Um, or maybe, maybe it's, maybe it won't actually ever disappear completely. You know, maybe, maybe the younger generations will slowly put that flag down, but I don't know. But I feel like in our narrative, when we say, how do we get past the trauma? I don't know if it's, I, I don't, I don't know if I would necessarily say, how do we get past it, but how do we confront it? Get through right? it. Right? Yeah. How do we like confront it? How do we question it? How do we think, uh, um, shape the evolution of what's next? for our community. Um, and I think there's a huge opportunity, like we said, 
to do that, right? Because growing up, first of all, not only were we like afraid to speak up outside in the American world, but inside our homes, we were afraid to speak Terrifying. up, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think nowadays, like, you know, I know the younger generations are less afraid. I know my kids will talk back to me any moment they get. And they're just brought up in an environment where they, um, you know, are are kind of taught to have a little bit more confidence to voice their opinion and to share a perspective. And that's good. You know, that's, that's growth. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like we should question it. I feel like it's yeah, worth talking about. Pretty courageous for even bringing that up. Cause you specifically said it. I was like, okay, you're going to blow the doors open. I'm going to go with you here. <laughs> I have a story that I've, yeah, I have a story that I I've told, um, on a, couple of talks before, but, <clears throat> you know, so I will, I went to business school at Thunderbird school of management and it's, it's, um, mainly known for international management. And, um, it's got a lot of international students in the student body in general. So it's tradition in the graduation ceremony that different groups from uh, different kids from different countries will hold their flag walking down the ceremony. And of course, I think I was the only Vietnamese person in my graduating class. So they asked me to hold it and it was the flag with the star. Um, and my parents are at my graduation. And it's not that I didn't know that they still recognize the stripe, but I just thought, hey, this is a ceremony. I've been asked to carry this just to represent that I'm Vietnamese. And my God, my parents freaked out before I even walked down the aisle. My mom, my brother was like pulling me aside, was like, you cannot do this. He's like, mom is sitting out there crying because you're about to hold that flag down the ceremony. This was 2006. Oh, that's so early. And, um, and you know what? It uh, obviously it clicked for me, but I was like, wow. Like, I, I mean, I was like, she's crying. Like, she knows this is just for like, you know, part of the graduation ceremony, it's like no ill intent of any kind, right? To say North, South or whatever. It's just to say, hey, we've got, you know, Vietnam represented in the student body. Um, of course, I didn't go through with it. I had to tell the event coordinator that I wasn't feeling well, because you don't want to go through the whole backstory of why you can't walk down, you know, like two minutes before the ceremony. Um, but it really hit home for me that I don't think my parents will ever get past it in their living uh, generation. Can um, I ask you something? I get it. Yeah. Can I ask you today, if you are walking down the graduation aisle, what would you do today with the same scenario? Your mom's in the stands. You are who you are with all of the media experience. How would you approach it today? Oh, this is such a great question. I have to say, I know this is going to sound so bad and I hope my, my listeners don't think poorly of me, but there is just a huge sense of loyalty that I have to my parents. And I want to emphasize that because honestly, I was born after the war. Anything I know about Vietnam is through what's been told to me. So I didn't experience the divide, right? So I don't have this tremendous loyalty to North or South, but I do have tremendous loyalty to my parents and respect for what they've gone through. 
And for those reasons, I probably wouldn't go through it knowing now how my mom would react, right? I didn't think about it then. I was also young then and not like in this space, right? Where I'm dissecting the theories and what it means. Um, So I wouldn't, but whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. And that's why I think having the discussion about what's next for our community, and I think it will evolve. I mean, I think a lot of how we feel is what's been passed on to us, right? From our parents. I love your answer. It's honest, you know, and nobody can challenge that because it's honest and they can come at you with trying to perhaps persuade you with the new way of looking. But at the end of the day, I mean, your love, my love for our parents, it, it trumps everything. Now, maybe if they pass away, it's still not going to be natural no. to, to change that ideology of, of that flag, uh, the semiotics of that flag. It's such a... It's tricky topic. <laughs> tricky topic. But then what, what, I wonder what our kids are, are, are all half Vietnamese, right? And, you know, I wonder if, I really truly wonder what they're going to think in 30 years when they're, um, you know, there's going to be some pride because they have, you know, my kids are Taiwanese and Vietnamese. When they look at their parents' mother country, I wonder if they're going to be as moved with the history as like a fifth generation Irish person in, on the East Coast feels, you know, when they're at the bar and they're, you know, drinking their Guinness and, you know, they, they see the Irish flag and there's this like, well, there's a lot of built in history that they don't know about. And they're just like yeah. drinking and having a good time when Conor McGregor is fighting, you know, in the MMA at UFC. I wonder if there's going to be a Vietnamese fighter, you know, on MMA and they're cheering for this kid 30 years from now with the Vietnamese flag and how that's going to all play out with the star flag Star flag. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, what they're taught in school today is that the Vietnam flag is a star. Yeah. You know, like that's what my kids are taught in the American school system. Right. Um, And it is the flag, the nation's flag. Um, So I, you know, my kids are too young for me to go into the whole details of it, but because they know what mommy has a podcast, my daughter's been on a recording road shows with me. So she, she gets it more than my son. Um, and she, you know, is a very inquisitive kid. So she'll read about the Vietnam war at the library at the age of, she just turned nine today, but like, she's been doing that since she was seven. Um, so I feel like it's always going to stick with her from, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but unfortunately she has a mom in this space and she's kind of exposed to it on a daily basis. Um, so my son's different. He's not as attuned to it, you know, just because he's younger. So I, I don't know the answer to that because my kids are in this space, um, with me, but what I will say is like, um, you know, when I do talks at some of the universities and, you know, Vietnamese student association, VSAs, there are a combination of like Vietnamese Americans and international students from Vietnam. And it's very interesting to actually um, speak to the ones that came from Vietnam because, you know, they were born, oh my gosh, some of them were born past 2000. 2000, can you imagine? (laughs) I don't feel that old, but my God, we are that old. 2002, (laughs) 2003, you're right. I never thought about that. 
And, um, you know, it's very interesting to talk to them. Number one, they're taught an entirely different narrative growing up in Vietnam, right? And then they come here and I'm speaking about Vietnamese boat people and they're intrigued, but they don't feel the same emotional connection, yeah. right? To what I'm talking about. Um, and I've also spoken to some that, you know, when they first arrived in the US, they hung their Vietnam flag in their rooms and they're living with an aunt and uncle who was like freaking out going into the room and was like, you cannot hang that here. And they're like, what? Like, you know, so it's, I don't know. I think they just grow up with, um, uh, I, I don't, for lack of a better word, I'm going to say less baggage. And I think we can expect that that baggage will get lighter yeah. with the history and it'll probably develop their own history for, you know, that's important to their generation. I would love to see more podcasts um, coming from the younger generation and more podcasters in our space in general. And I, uh, you know, I talked to Randy and you and I have talked, I, um, I'm, putting a message out there to the public that um, I think we we should have a lot more podcasters that are Vietnamese because of the amplification process that happens with podcasting and the dialogue about the flag and the evolution of our position um, can be normalized you know, if there's more conversation and unfortunately there's only a handful of people doing this. And I think that, um, I am always begging and pleading with friends of mine in the public space, um, to do podcasts because, um, I mean, can you imagine if there's like 20, 30 of us it, that are, you know, in five years from now where we can go on each other's shows, we can share audience, you're doing work. That's very different from the work that I'm doing, but at the same time, we're working towards the same thing, which is open discussion, just mm -hmm. trying to figure out things and, and debating and having these open forums of thoughts being exchanged. And I think that that's a very healthy place uh, to, to, to be. So um, one thing that I look forward to that we've talked about is having a, a, um, a group uh podcast session with, with Randy. Yes, um, I know. We have to set the date. We, yeah. And it'll be so much fun because podcasters, we love to talk. <laughs> we'll definitely have a lot to talk about. Um, I agree with you. You know, I don't know if I necessarily would say um, I want, it doesn't have to be just in the podcast space in terms of younger generations. Um, you know, I think that, first of all, I feel like there's tons of content creators out there in the, that generation. Um, you know, there's just so much technology at their fingertips and that they um, have found different ways to, you know, have dialogue, share um, their own um, points of views and stuff like that. So what I would say is that um, I would love to, uh, you know, I'd love to ha have them talk about, like you said, specific topics that we don't necessarily feel like we should talk about, right, publicly. And um, gosh, you know, if my parents listen to me, they'll be like, <laughs> like they're probably going to be like, 
shaming me or something. But I, you know, I, I just come from the mindset that like, it's healthy to talk about it. Um, but also, I, I don't think it's disrespecting history. I think it's about moving forward, right? And um, sometimes people feel like you can't move forward without like, not, you know, disrespecting what has happened and what it's meant to people. And I don't think that's true at all, right? Um, so I, I think it's important to have these dialogues and whether or not it's on a podcast, I would love for like, like you said, younger generations to, you know, strike up the conversation in whatever medium that they're most comfortable with. I mean, let's project out into the future about this flag dialogue real quick. Just imagine if the previous generation are no, they're no longer here. Our parents are no longer here. And we are now in our sixties and that flag is flying everywhere. What is going to happen at that point? Do you think that there's people in our generation that's going to bang the drums and be like, no, 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 no. We got to keep the three red yes, stripes. Really? I do. I do. I do. And um... that's dark. I'm, and like I said, it's not that I, I don't know if it's right or wrong is yeah. what I'm trying to ask th that question, right? Like, I think there's just different points of views on it, but do I think it will fade away completely? No, because I don't think anything ever fades away completely. I think there's always going to be people that hold on to the past for whatever, like internal reasons that gives them, you know, the, the passion to do so. Um, and whether or not it's r right or wrong, I don't know, but I do think it's going to be less so. Um, because again, I think, you know, generations from now it, that flag becomes a historical figure versus an actual experience. Right. And so the emotional connection to it just changes. I mean, you're right. I mean, I'm not comparing the old you know things anything but if you look in the history of the united states there's a flag from the south we're not going to name it but that still holds exactly identity. <laughs> <laughs> and there's still beliefs right and what is civil rights i mean yeah. you know I've made comparisons to that a few times and my friends are like, no, 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 no. That's very, can't go there. <laughs> not the same. And I'm like, no, that's not what I meant. But yeah, you know. no, no, you can't go there. It's not the same. However, Absolutely. it is in terms of what we're trying to yeah. like Analogous. portray, right? Yeah. Yeah. Have, do you go to Vietnam? Um, I used to go a lot more often than now. Um, my last time was in 2013. So right before my first kid was born, it was like, the big trip before, you know, we start a family. Oh, so you haven't been in a while. No. And, um, it, you know, then COVID happened. And now it's like, I would like to take my mom back with my kids. Um, Has she been? But, oh, my mom used to go all the time. She hasn't been in the last few years because she's just much older. And, she, um, you know, the, the trip is so like exhausting for her. Yeah. But um, I used to go often, I used to have a business in my 20s of importing goods in Vietnam. What did you import? Um, shoes and accessories. I went back to Vietnam for the first time in 2000 with my sister who was in fashion design and it, I fell in love with the country. Um, I just saw so much like art and crafts and talent and 
Um, we wanted to bring that craftsmanship to the U.S., um, but this was in 2000. So, you know, U.S. normal trade relations was pretty recent. And um, I was in my 20s, first of all. We did pretty well. We got a lot of like magazine coverage, but, like I wasn't ready to run a business. So it didn't last. It only lasted a couple of years. Um, but, you know, I, I felt like at the time I was educating people on what made in Vietnam was because at that time there weren't a lot of products that were being imported that were made in Vietnam. And so we started the company in 2000 and uh, I was with it until 2005. So right before I left for business school. Um, and then I, I did a tour with the US embassy, a women's and business tour. So I spoke in a lot of different cities um, right around 2007. So I, I've done a lot of business trips. I don't do them as much now though. Well, we have the very similar trajectory in business. Um, I was also starting um, out with my family business in 2000. Um, we still run it today, but it's not, uh, it's, it's small. It's not as, you know, we had 250 people working for us in, in 2002, 2003. It's amazing. We scaled down and um, it's not even that many, but, you know, it's, it's much more efficient, but Vietnam has changed so much yes. infrastructural, um, the way things are done. It's, it's not what people think it is. No. I mean, I remember when we started, so we took, you know how, um, I don't know how you say it in Viet in Vietnamese, but you know, the, um, artistry where they take like eggshells and they lacquer it on furniture and like, um, uh, dishware and stuff. So my sister designed, she took the same craftsmanship and she did clogs, like shoes. So she would do the heels of the shoes and she would work with local artisans to do that. And we would import it. But it just became like this like big conversation of like how it's made. And um, I think at the time there's a lot of stuff made in China. So like we had that competition going on in, in terms of like we were trying to educate our consumers about something that was handcrafted and very artisanal when they were used to something that was made, you know, a little bit more factory like on the cheap end. So it was a little bit of a struggle for us. But the I do remember we also did flip flops. And we would we would place orders for hundreds of flip flops in like a set of sizes. And this is early on Vietnam where the quality control was not always there. We would get these hundreds of shoes and the boxes would be labeled size six through 10. And they would have stickers on all the shoes, but you'd open them and they were all the same size. Oh my God. <laughs> But that's like early on what it was like. And I'm sure your company experienced like that level of quality and consistency when you're trying to like grow and it wasn't always there um, in the early stages. And so I remember that too. And that was like tough trying to figure out, okay, well, what do we do with like, you know, 500 size sixes? <laughs> oh, wow. And that's still going on that, that whether it's in film or production or yeah. There's this level of, um, I think in, you know, in the U.S., there's a level of like just follow through and commitment to this, the details of things that have to be done, where I think in all over Asia, not just Vietnam, I think all over Asia, that sort of like that, um, 
that kind of ethos is not as strict and, mm-hmm. you know, for better, or for worse, there's things, there's beautiful things about not having that strict uh, German, you know, Japanese sort of way of doing things um, in Asia. There's, there's a beautiful flow about that, but then at the same time, the quality control is a little bit, uh, you know, lacking. <laughs> Inconsistent. <laughs> you know, um, how has podcasting and the work that you do, how has that changed your life? Um, actually, it's, it's changed it quite a bit. So when I started the podcast, I was also in the corporate world. Um, and I don't know, but did I tell you this? So I was another point of why doing what I do became so important was because, you know, everybody turns a decade older and then they're like, whoa, you know, what am I doing with my life? Am I going to, am I doing anything meaningful? <laughs> so right around the time I, I had turned 40 when I started the podcast and I was also an associate partner at a big management consulting firm, uh, technology firm. And I just was questioning whether or not what I was doing was purposeful. Like I was putting tons of hours into my day job, right? And so when I started the podcast, I started putting um, a lot of hours at night. So it would be my nights and weekends in the podcast. And then I had my day job with the, in the corporate world. Um, and so a couple of things, I learned that passion really drives work more than money and anything else I've experienced. Because I was obviously not getting paid for any of this. Right. But my husband, and he made this comment, he was like, it is so amazing to see you staying up on a weekday after you've worked a full day of job, taking care of the kids, put them to bed, and then stay up to 2am editing the show. And he was like, I have so much admiration. And he's like, I, I wish I found something that I was that passionate about. And so for me, like, I just really learned how to push forward and have more confidence in myself in a space that I've never was professionally trained in. Um, but like, I just loved it so much and I was so passionate. And so for me, it was almost like a rebirth of what it means to like do something you really love. Um, so it changed me in that way. It also brought me closer to my parents. Um, I've always been close with my mom but I don't think I had a sense of appreciation for her stories as much as I do now. And my dad and I are definitely closer. Um, you know, when I first interviewed him, I felt like he spoke with me for six hours and really opened up. And we just never had that relationship growing up. Like we had a very distant relationship, mostly because he's a quiet man and I was always afraid, you know, to, to like have normal conversation yeah. with him. And then when you turn 40 and your dad's 80, you're like, what the heck? We're older now. What do you have to lose? Right. And so everything becomes a little bit more like um, open and honest. And, you know, I wasn't afraid to ask questions, um, very private ones. Um, And he respected me for it. And because I was older, he didn't feel like he had to hide things from me. Right. And same with my mom. So I feel like this whole experience brought me closer to them. And I have a very, um, a much greater appreciation for them, like a different one. Like, you know, when you're growing up, you have so much respect for them, but it's sort of like this figure that you're afraid of. And it's like, I'm not afraid of them now. I just have more understanding for them. And I I think that's a huge difference. Um, The last thing I would say is I learned how to be a better leader and a manager. 
So I'm a type A personality <laughs> and in the corporate world, I would lead teams that I was very like detail oriented and I would listen to people, but I always had in the back of my mind how I felt like things should be. And so yeah. it always kind of steered that way. And, um, and, you know, I was a visionary, so I was uh, very hands-on. And I think with this nonprofit and podcast, I mean, the majority of our team are volunteers. They were hundred percent volunteers when we started out, but now that we are getting a little bit more grants and stuff, I'm able to pay some of our producers and people that help out. Um, but what I've learned is to be a better leader because mm -hmm. when you're not paying them, you, I didn't feel like I had the right to be like, I want it this time, this time and this way. So it made me actually sit back and listen more because I thought, well, they're clearly doing this on their own time because something is driving them to, to connect with this work. Something is, you know, making them very passionate about that. Um, and so it allowed me to listen to them more, to find spaces where they could grow to, um, and all of them are younger than me, by the way. I'm like the old granny on the team. <laughs> but, you know, it, it also helped me really like see their generation's perspective. Um, and so I feel like I've just become a better manager because I let them have the space that they need to create. Um, and I don't know, like I'm, I don't know how to describe it, but I'm less like, uh, I, feel, I don't feel the need to be 100% or 110% hands-on as I would have when I was in like the corporate world. Which Tracy, today um, you were so gracious to open up with so many of the stories and share with me, you know, the, the journey that you've been through and it's very valuable and it's invaluable to me. So I want to tell you how much I thank you. And I look forward to many more of these with you and with other podcasters and, you know, the next 20 years of our, you know, our life on earth, I hope that we can work together to amplify and, and to get the, the stories, the discussions uh, in our world out. Oh, yes, me too. And I hope that this is only the beginning of many more conversations. Um, and I'd love to do things together in the future, like beyond podcasting, right? Because we're uh, much stronger as a community and as creators when we work together um, to, to share these stories. So I'd love to do that. Yeah. Thank you so much again. Thanks, Kenneth. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. The Vietnamese is produced by Brittany Tran. Special thanks to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Christo Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast. You can also find us on YouTube where you can subscribe, like, and comment. Please rate and give us a review wherever you find our podcast. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. 